It's Golden Hour Adventure Time, featuring everyday people doing extraordinary things. From the peaks of victory to the valleys of defeat, these are their stories. Now, from the back of the pack, your hosts, Justin and Robbie. This podcast is sponsored by Death March Running Company. So Death March Running Company was started by three friends, Taylor, Alan, and Cody. And they've logged tons of miles together and have shared the obsession with pushing the limits and finding out what they're capable of. They wanted to build a place where the run community could meet over that shared love to celebrate the resilience, the miles, the ugly crying, and the blisters that unbreakable spirits of ultra runners. The genesis of Death March didn't happen overnight. It simmered over countless trails, long conversations during high mileage runs or unforgettable experiences, suffering, laughing, and even crying in between aid stations. Their collective passion for ultra running and the desire to encapsulate that is what birthed the idea of Death March. The turning point was at this year's High Lonesome 100. It was in the last 30 miles, of course, death marching to the finish. That they decided the years spent contemplating, planning, and dreaming needed to materialize into something tangible. So here they are, Death March. It's not just about the miles. It's about embracing the beauty and the struggle, celebrating the resilient spirit of every runner, and creating a community where every hard-earned step is cherished. Welcome to Golden Hour Adventures Podcast. Today, we have two guests. First time ever. And we have a returning guest, Dave Martin. Endurance Dave, welcome back. We uh, we kind of just hit the surface with you, and we wanted to bring you back in since upcoming race season, people are training. We want to do a little di- deeper dive into nutrition. And we also have Dr. Lunn. Welcome to the show, you guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Love being here. Yeah, I appreciate you coming back. This was, uh, I, I had so many messages from different people like, oh my gosh, can you ask him this? Or what, what's this? What's that? And so it's like, I, I felt like it was only fair to everyone to, to bring you back on and let's, uh, let's dive into some more topics on nutrition and training. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, I think the first topic we have, let's, let's jump right in. We we're talking about, um, heat training. I know we, we touched the surface on it. Um, a little bit when we uh, were talking about anal probes and running on treadmills, <laughs> but I, I, you know, it's like I, I went out to my local run shop and I was looking for an anal probe to start heat training. And the, the you know, the store owner was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, Hey, endurance Dave told me I got to get an anal probe. So, um, but yeah, we actually had one of our listeners reach out asking about, um, heat, I guess you call it heat act. Um, acclimatation. I can't say the word, so I'm calling it ACK as well. And then how does that transition over to um, high altitude training? Sure. Yeah. So just just for fun, there's heat acclimation and there's heat acclimatization. So when you're doing heat acclimation, you're actually getting used to the heat, but in some type of artificial area. So inside of a chamber using clothing, and then acclimatization would be outside. So what we're doing in our lab is we're doing heat ack for sure, or heat acclimation inside the chamber. And I kind of went over this last time, but for, for us, we use a protocol where someone exercises in around 40 degrees Celsius and 40% humidity for five times around an hour and 20, an hour to 30 minutes within an eight day period. So you could take breaks in between and we have people usually run for 20 to 25 minutes at around 70% of their VO2 max. So uh, for, for just like a general runner, I would say that's probably feels like a seven out of 10 effort until you get to the end of the 25 minutes, because you're so hot, it starts to feel like a nine or a 10 out of 10 effort. And then we bring them down to like 40% of their VO2 max, which is usually a faster walk. And they're actually able to keep their core temperature above 38.5 degrees Celsius for an hour and staying at that zone for an hour is what creates that heat acclimation like um, uh, development or um, that physiological change. Um, So in terms of what happens when you go through heat acclimation, we see a couple different things. So we usually see an increase in sweat rate. So let's say someone loses 1.5 liters an hour while they're exercising in the heat, we might see that increase to two. 
and that's going to help them with evaporative heat loss and help them cool off when they're exercising in a hot climate. We usually see heart rate decrease. And then we also um, see that uh, core temperature decreases at the same effort. But there's also some other cool things that might translate to being like in a hypoxic condition. So we do a lot of blood testing in our lab. So we'll look a lot at blood plasma. We'll look at hematocrit and we'll also look at hemoglobin. And we actually see hematocrit increase quite a bit. So the red carrying capacity or the red oxygen carrying capacity of the blood, we actually see that increase. So if your blood and your body's able to hold on to more oxygen um, through the hemoglobin, because there's more red content in the blood compared to the plasma, if you spin blood, you have the plasma, then you have the hematocrit. Within the hematocrit, you have the hemoglobin, the red blood cells that carry oxygen. So if that's at a higher um, content or a higher capacity, that could certainly help you out a lot. Um, at altitude. Um, so that's, I think, one area where that could certainly help. I'm looking a little bit during my dissertation at water balance. So certainly if you can hold on to more water and you're more hydrated after you go through heat acclimation, um, that could certainly help you. Um, and if you can defend that blood plasma much easier, because as you sweat, the water's got to come from somewhere. Um, there's a lot of water content in the bloodstream. So as you lose that blood, your body's trying to say, Hey, how can we defend the blood plasma? So it will take water from the intracellular space and the extracellular space to defend the amount of blood in the plasma. But as you acclimate, there might be some different ways that your body tries to hold on to that water within the cell, outside the cell and within, um, within the venous system. So obviously that could help you a lot at, at um, altitude as well. Um, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Dr. Lon. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm going to try to talk louder because I know my volume is a little bit lower. So I think you had some great points there, Dave. I think a really good point is I think the the marriage of heat acclimatization and then going to altitude, one of the biggest advantages from heat acclimatization is expansion of the plasma volume. You literally have more blood, which is a huge advantage going to altitude because when you're at altitude, you have a lot more of what's called insensible perspiration. So you're losing a lot more water from your body just from your respiratory passages. Now, even, I mean, you're, you're working also, so you're sweating and losing that water, but just because the air is so dry at altitude, you're losing water that you don't even notice. And it's very, very, very easy to, to dehydrate. Same, it's similar if you're going to hike in Grand Canyon. I mean, people have died in Grand Canyon because they get dehydrated, majority of which is just water being literally sucked out of them because it's so dry. And when you're, when you're at altitude, it can be very similar. And when you're at working at altitude, it's almost impossible to stay fully hydrated. So if you can, as David said, defend yourself by expanding that plasma volume with heat act before you go to, to altitude, you're a little bit better off. It's going to take longer for you to reach that dehydration point because you've got that expanded volume. So it's not my specialty. I mean, it's more in, in Dave's wheelhouse, but I'm, I was, as he was saying this, I was, I was wondering if there's any studies that showed if people were, were actually better defended against dehydration doing heat acclimatization before they went to altitude. They're very well, maybe, but I'm just thinking in my head, that would be a good kind of practice if you know you're going to like oh, yeah. Leadville to do the Leadville 100 and, you know, doing, doing something in the heat just for the sole purpose of expanding your plasma volume. Yeah. I hear really... about people... You hear about people going, you know, from Florida, you know, it's flat. You don't get the, you don't get the, the training, you know, and, and the elevation's really low, but it's hot, of course. Mm -hmm. And they're going out and running Leadville. They're going out and running Hard Rock. All of these major races that are above 10,000 feet for pretty much the entire race. And they're being, you know, they're able to succeed. And so, you know, there, there has to be crossover there. And like you said, you haven't yeah. seen much on paper, but I mean, it's like, there's people doing it, you know, so. Yeah, you hear about training in the heat if you know you're going to compete in the heat. You hear about training at altitude if you know you're going to uh, compete at altitude. But in the literature, I just haven't seen specifically training in the heat when you go to altitude to help. Yeah. To help I have a really hydration. cool fact about that. So all of us right now just sitting in a thermoneutral zone. I don't know what altitude you're at, Robbie and Justin, but let's say you're more at sea level and you're just sitting in a thermoneutral area. During the day, the water loss just from respiration and breathing is around 250 to 300 milliliters, which is a good amount, you know, but it's not crazy big. 
But if we went to altitude in a really cold environment and did the exact same thing, maybe did some work outside, it would increase to 1.5 liters. I was reading some of the old Dr. Gasolfi, like Gatorade Sports Science Institute, and I came across that stat. And I just thought that was crazy to think that it goes from 300 milliliters to 1.5 liters of loss just through breathing. So now, I mean, like Dr. Lund just talked about, you have to train at these altitudes to know how to compensate for that water loss. Because if you can only digest maybe one to 1.5 liters per hour, but now you're losing just that through respiration and not even through your sweat. Like that's, that's a lot to compensate for. It's a lot of loss. Yeah. Well, Dave, when I did that study, that army study, when I was living at on, on the top of Pike's peak for three weeks, you, we just couldn't stay hydrated enough. I mean, you were just, I mean, your the skin was cracked. Lit, lips were cracked just from living up there. I mean, we also had to hike several miles a day and that was, it was, you, you just couldn't stay hydrated enough. It was so mm-hmm. dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are what are some of the um, the protocols? I know we discussed it a little bit last time, but maybe we dive a little bit deeper. Like, what are some of the protocols that someone can do at home that doesn't have a, a, a massive lab that they can, you know, have at their disposal to to get some of this heat training in for sure. one of these hotter races? You know, I know a couple pro triathletes who will exercise and do their bike workout or their run workout, and then they'll go into a sauna directly afterwards because their core temperature is already elevated from that workout. And then they'll go sit in a sauna or a jacuzzi for a half hour, 40 minutes. And obviously they don't have the luxury of having, you know, they have the core sensor now, which fits on your heart rate strap and that can estimate core body temperature. But like I told you, we kind of have done some preliminary studies on that. And as you move away from like the central body temperature, which is usually around 37 degrees Celsius, as you move up and as you move down, the difference between what the core sensor is telling you and what your true like deep body temperature is, is, you know, becoming wider. Um, So I know a couple pro athletes who use the jacuzzi and sauna and do a uh, like process of using that throughout a week or two weeks going into a race. I had that one athlete, Bill Gifford, who wrote the book with Peter Atia for um, longevity and health. He was doing the hotter than hell 100 bike race in Texas. And I was training him for that. And he was over in Utah. So I just had him put on many layers of clothing while he was going out and riding his bike you know, which obviously isn't super comfortable and you're, you're getting all wet and your clothing is gross and it's not the best feeling, but it works. And I think, I think you and I talked about this, Dr. Lon, I think Kipchoge was doing the exact same thing, you know, leading yeah, into his I, marathons. I want to jump in here. I think, yeah, these are all things that, that athletes will do, but the, the professional in me has to add a disclaimer here. That's if athletes are going to do this, they shouldn't do it unless they can monitor their core temperature mm-hmm. and they re- they probably shouldn't do it alone. They should probably do it with at least one other person because if you do something, if you just jump into training in a sauna or even going into a sauna or training with layers of clothes on, I mean, it's not dissimilar from athletes who have died, say like wrestlers or boxers trying to lose weight by, you know, sweating the pounds off. It's not that much different from that. So it's not as, as extreme, but it's on that level. So as I said, I feel I have to put the disclaimer in there. You can do that as long as you can safely monitor your, your, your yeah. core temperature. Yeah. As soon as you get above 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius, you can really um, start to run the risk of those cells denaturing or, you know, being destroyed. So yeah, when I worked yeah. with Bill Gifford, he had the core sensor on, we brought the core sensor into the lab and looked at the difference between that and the rectal temperatures of that when he brought that home, we could kind of assimilate it a little bit, but yeah, it certainly can be super dangerous if you're doing it on your own. Cause I, I, the reason I say this is I think there, there can be a big danger because of a lot of athletes, not just strength athletes, but a lot of endurance athletes will use some sort of like pre-workout, a lot of which is, can be, can have a stimulant in it, which can have the effect of, uh, deadening sensations of pain or discomforts, mm-hmm. and that can include symptoms of heat stress. So if you don't know that something is very bad happening to you, it can get to the point where it's too late and something very serious can, can happen. Yeah. Yeah. But I would, I would say that those are probably the most popular protocols by athletes that I've talked to are the sauna, the jacuzzi, wearing extra clothes. Um, yep. you know, my coach, John Fetchick, he puts a heater in his room 
that's off the side of his house with his bike. So he just heats one area and he'll do workouts in that that are similar to the temperatures that he's, he's going into. But I think also to make it safe for people who are listening as well, you know, obviously if you can monitor your core temperature, you should, but also weighing yourself before and afterwards. Like the last thing you would want to do is lose eight pounds. You know, for one day I lost eight pounds because I had to lose 4% for a study and then not replenish that. And then you're continuing to stay dehydrated all day, which is not helping with protein synthesis and helping with rebuilding cells and rebuilding your body and helping with recovery after you're working out. That could be also pretty bad. So weighing yourself before, weighing yourself afterwards and making sure you get your body weight back up to what it was before the workout. Yeah, no, great tips. I appreciate that. Um, When I was uh, training for this last race that I did, um, I was training outside at negative 20. And then I would uh, get on my treadmill in my garage um, about half the time and I would crank the heat up to mimic kind of race day conditions, mm-hmm. which weren't that hot. You know, 60 degrees is what we were anticipated, but I would crank my garage up to 60 degrees and just run in that. And and I had zero issues with heat, you know, so it, it, I guess it worked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or my arm just stubborn. I don't know. <laughs> Do you ever have issues up there with breathing and any type of asthma with running in the cold? Like yeah, you, you definitely, uh, you definitely can feel it when it gets, it gets pretty cold. Um, you know, we, we all wear masks when it gets that cold and, um, that way we can heat the air when we're bringing it in. But you know, when it's, you know, below zero, negative 10, 20, you're, you're definitely having to put something over your face. Cause it just, it makes that, you know, it makes that little of a difference, but I, I don't think you're going to freeze your lungs by any means running out there in that cold, but, mm-hmm. um, I have noticed where if I don't wear something and it's like five, 10 degrees above zero, then, you know, I, I can get a little bit of a cough, but when I'm wearing like a buff or something, just something small, putting it over my face, I don't have that issue. Makes a difference. Where are you, Justin? I'm in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, currently sitting at negative 21 right now. And so I think negative 40 tonight is what we're anticipating. So wow, wow. should be fun. <laughs> we can't complain Every, here. Everybody's <laughs> complaining right now about the temperatures. And I'm like, you guys have no idea. <laughs> oh, it's, fr- it's freezing. It's 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mine's in Fahrenheit as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks guys on the heat. Uh, Robbie, you can take over the next one. Well, I think this is a perfect segue to go into because you're Dave, you start talking about dehydration. I wanted to do, uh, hit a little more on uh, fuel, or excuse me, electrolyte and hydration. Uh, if some people, new listeners, are just starting in this, you know, endurance world, whatever it may be, and even the seasoned uh, veterans that are out there, what can the athletes do to make sure that they're, you know, properly hydrated and they're keeping their electrolyte balance? well through the whole race Mm -hmm. i know a lot of people struggle with the electrolyte side but i know they play hand in hand i don't i don't think a lot of people understand the importance of the balance if one gets depleted the other one you know it's hard to catch back up or there's multiple different things that can happen Mm -hmm. but i see it a lot in races where someone comes into the finish line and they sit down and within 10 minutes, they're freezing cold and they're shaking. Mm-hmm. And I usually go up and tell them that you, you have electrolyte imbalance and you need to start consuming some salt. Um, and they can usually, depending where they're at, help a little bit. But what, what's your experience and what do you guys tell your athletes how to fuel, excuse me, I keep saying fuel, hydrate and keep your electrolyte balance? Yeah. So many cool things I want to cover on there. I I just did an interview with Bicycling Magazine last week, and they had really similar questions. And so I went into this little nerdy research of hydration and thirst. And because they were really curious what, what affects thirst and if cold affects thirst, because they were curious as to how athletes could possibly get more dehydrated in the wintertime versus the summertime. So I'm sure Justin would love that being in negative (laughs) 40 degrees. So that's how I knew that one aspect about the breathing and how it goes from 350 milliliters to 1.5. But the, the electrolytes and flavors in general are huge. 
if you just have water at room temperature, obviously somebody's going to drink it, but the thirst drive is going to be further down than, than if you add flavor, electrolytes, or if it's colder. So there were some cool studies, again, going back to GSSI textbooks that I love from the 90s. There were some really cool studies where they tried to find the exact temperature of water that would make people want to drink more. And it was around 15 to 22 degrees. Yeah. So that's like the opti- optimal like drinking temperature. A little t- colder than that was great. People loved it but they didn't get the sheer volume in because it was too cold. Like, so they had to drink smaller amounts, but when it was between 15 and 22, they got a large volume of water in, um, as well as it being the most palatable. So, uh, a good temperature water is important for hydrating. Number one, um, number two, people tend to drink more water. I think the stat was 50% more when there's a flavor, so I know Cody Beals, who's always trying to make his finances available to people in the public and is trying to save money in triathlon. He just simply adds lemon and then he goes to the store and he buys like a lemonade or an iced tea mix and puts it in his water. You know, so I know a lot of athletes just make their own mix and they make something that tastes good for them. Electrolytes are another thing. So the salt content and the electrolytes is going to affect the thirst me- mechanism and make you want to drink more. So the electrolytes can certainly help with increasing that thirst and making you drink more water. And I I truly think uh, someone who's starting should be practicing while they're exercising all the time. So, you know, gastric emptying can be influenced by somebody drinking or not drinking. And that I'll always remember the first talk I had with Douglas Casa before I came here for my doctorate. He said that you can actually influence the amount of water that your stomach digests and empties into the system. So you should always be trying to practice. So somebody who's just starting out in the sport, I would tell them to always run with a water bottle and be practicing. And then I think another really big mistake is that people obviously go on social media and see from maybe the Precision Hydration Instagram channel that this athlete is losing 900 milligrams of sodium per hour. So all of a sudden now I have to put 900 milligrams of sodium in my water bottle and drink that per hour. And then they get a huge gut problem, upset stomach. They start throwing up and they start having huge issues. So the more carbohydrate and the more electrolyte you put in your water bottle and drink, the slower gastric emptying is going to be. So we call that osmolality. So the higher osmolality or the higher tonicity of your substance, the slower um, gastric emptying is going to be out of your stomach. So, you know, for someone who has a really, really high sweat rate and needs to digest and take in a lot of water, the amount of sodium and the amount of carbohydrate that they put together is really going to have to be something that they practice to see what empties the quickest and what they can, they can tolerate. So, You know, again, we talked about not having the rectal probes available to us in the store down the street (laughs) and not having the core sensor and all these things. And, you know, you can buy a Gatorade sweat patch for $7 and take a picture of it with your phone and get an estimate of how much sodium you're losing. You can come into the lab and pay me. I think it's $600 for me to wash you down and figure out how much sodium you're losing. But if you (laughs) if you don't have that, um, my my suggestion is always to start low like add half a tab, add 100 milligrams, like even a little bit less and see how your body tolerates it. And then you can always work your way up. And then through racing and racing in hot climates, racing in cold climates, you just gain experience on what your body can tolerate and what you can handle. But I would say my biggest advice is for people just to practice, even when they're training, even when they're going on a 45 minute run, if they're doing an hour run, two hour run, is to always have a water bottle with you and to play with different things. But you should always, if you're doing these long races, you should certainly be using electrolytes. Um, That's certainly going to help with fluid balance. It's going to help replenish all the electrolytes that you're losing out of your skin, which is not just sodium, but potassium and chloride and things that we don't measure in the lab, like magnesium that's coming out of your skin as well. So it's really important to try to replenish those things so that your body is, is working correctly. You're still contracting muscle fibers, which involve sodium, potassium, and you still have your cells working, which use a lot of these same processes. You have calcium release from the, you know, the muscle, which is helping your muscles release. So 
um, or contract. So I, I think it's important that you you practice at least with a small amount and then go up from there. I don't know if Dr. Lund has anything to add on that, probably. Uh, yeah, I think you had a great point when you're talking about a lot of people going onto social media and listening to what other professional athletes are doing and say, oh, this is what they did. This is what I need to do. And I think that's I think people need to be a lot more self-aware. I think relying on social media has taken away a lot of that, that self-awareness that they need to kind of listen to what they need. So there's a number of really good products. I'll use Gatorade and I'm not a shill for Gatorade, but I'm just going to mention it's uh, the product because it's been around for, for decades for a, a good reason. I mean, it has for the, for most people, an appropriate amount of sodium and potassium for replenishment based on what they sweat out. There can be individual differences. So if I remember correctly, it's about around 500 milligrams uh, per liter. That's how much sodium is in in Gatorade. And for most people, that's going to be appropriate. Some might need less, some might need need more. And when I talk about self-awareness, I'll give you an example. Uh, Back when I was, before I got into triathlon, I was just a competitive runner. I was training for a marathon. It might've been the New York City Marathon. And I was doing a long run. And at the end of the run, I was feeling this type of fatigue that I'd never felt before. It wasn't bonking. I'd felt that before and it wasn't that. It just felt weird. I'd never felt it before. And it was that run I noticed all of a sudden there was a lot more salts like on my shoes, around my face and my arms. And I'd never seen that before. And for whatever reason, I still haven't figured out why, but I know that, you know, as you age, you can, it can, you can change how much salt you lose. I just, I think I just started all of a sudden just started losing a lot more sodium, potassium, these electrolytes in my sweat than before. So I just experimented with using some salt tabs the next run and it cleared it up like that. So that's why I say be self-aware. I mean, notice what's going on with you. You can take some advice from the information that's out there and the, in the, you know, in the advent of social media, that's, it can be very useful, it could, but it can be harmful sometimes, but don't forget about your own self-awareness and listen to what you need to do. If, if you think you're starting to lose more, despite what these, these common uh, suggestions are, try a little bit more. I would agree with David. If you're just starting out, try on the lower side. But for me, I always liked using Gatorade because it worked well for me, but I started using Gatorade and adding salt to it. This is before they, they just came out with their, oh, oh, what's the product called? Gatorade it just Endurance. Came out, it might be. It's the one with, with the greater concentration of sodium. Yeah, that's Gatorade Endurance. It. Okay. It, it was well before that. I mean, this was like 25 years ago. Um, so... I just added, you know, I, you know, I did the math and I figured out, so I, I can't want to make, I want I want my fluid to have this much, this many milligrams of sodium versus this much that's in, that's in uh, Gatorade. So I just did the math and added some table salt to it and it worked fine. So that's why I say people should be more self-aware and figure out how to do nutrition on their own, which is not, uh, it's not complicated. It's, it's mm-hmm. just takes a little bit of effort to go into it, but just be aware of what, what's happening to you. Yeah. Take the advice of what's out there, but then just kind of apply that to what's happening to you. Dave, you mentioned um, a, a tab that you can put on your arm and you measure the salt intake. Is there, are there other ways that someone at home can, you know, without going out and just doing trial and error, I've heard like weigh yourself, don't drink anything for an hour run, come back, weigh yourself again type thing, how much water loss you got, you know, and there's a, a, there's probably a million different protocols, but someone at home that wants to measure their, um, you know, their, their loss of electrolytes. What, what's some way that you suggest that? Yeah. So Dr. Lindsay Baker is the one that really helped pioneer the Gatorade sweat patch. I think those are $7 per patch. I think depending on your sweat rate will dictate how long you can wear it for, because it has these wells that have these color metric dyes in the wells. And if your sweat rate is super high and you wear it for too long, all of a sudden all the fluid will leak out and you're the, there's artificial intelligence in the program that allows you to take your phone, take a picture and based on the color metric design and how filled the well is that will tell you sodium concentration and sweat rate. So that's a a lesser expensive way to do it. There's also a company called Nix Biosensors that's based out of Boston. You can wear that sensor much longer. I actually wore it for 
seven hours during my run of the Appalachian Trail before it fell off, I think just because it was so hot. And um, But that will continuously monitor and that will shoot updates to your phone on different intervals, depending on the interval you choose. That could be 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And it will tell you what you're losing in live time. So it has these two sensors on the patch. And as you sweat, the water goes through the two sensors and the the time it takes for it to go from one sensor to the next is estimated into your sweat rate. And then it gives, it gives you total sweat electrolyte concentration. I think that sensor is around $129 and that involves four patches and then you buy multiple patches. But then I think like Dr. Lund said, you know, if you look down at your shoulders or your legs while you're working out and you see it covered with sodium, you can just maybe assume that you're a very salty sweater. So that consuming more is going to make a difference. And then I will say with heat acclimation, we see people putting out less salt and less sweat electrolytes. So heat acclimation actually causes the body to retain a lot more of those electrolytes, which is cool to help with water balance inside the body. So, um, yeah. Awesome. That's interesting with the heat. Because I don't think a lot of, I, I didn't know that, but just hearing that, because I've noticed, you know, when it's like average temperature through a season, I'm fine with my electrolytes. But when it gets hotter and I keep doing the same protocol, oh. I'm, you know, I tend to sweat. I have more salty on me, you know, and I, I have a little more issues. Mm-hmm. But after you hearing you say that in the heat that your body protects itself, so it doesn't. Um, so you might have to consume less electrolytes in hotter weather, humidity and that is that what you're saying? I think it depends I, I think- on if you go to even hotter climates for sure. Yeah. Cause then obviously the sweat rate's going to increase even more. So even though you have less electrolyte coming out per liter, if you're sweating more, there's going to be more electrolytes coming out. So I think it depends on yeah. the climate, but let's say you're at the same climate and you're, you're staying at that same intensity per liter of sweat, there's going to be less electrolyte coming out in that liter of sweat. Wow. Yep. That's good yeah. to know. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point, Dave. So the next topic we want to hit on is, and this is probably one of the biggest questions in endurance sports is fueling. There's so much all over the board with fueling. And as you were saying, Dr. Lund, if you go to social media, you're going to get steered all over the place. Um, I played around with nutrition because I love nutrition and fueling for a long time. Now, after the last podcast with you, Dave, and trying the cluster dextrin, everything's changed. I love hearing that from both <laughs> could, of you. That's so cool. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm doing about, um, so I did the low carb for a long time. And I was, I got into the low carb back in 2014 when, it, you know, the, the faster study came out and all that stuff came out and it was all over the place there wasn't a lot of information. So we were just playing around. And for me, it was fat is fuel. So, you know, eat fat. Then I found out, you know, just because you're eating fat doesn't mean you're turning it into ketones and all that stuff, which now we now know. But so then I kind of just played around a little bit after low carb. Then after talking with you, you were talking about high carb. I was like, you know what? I'm going to play with that. So I do right around 62 grams or 64 grams of that cluster dextrin an hour with a thousand milligrams of salt. I'm a very heavy salt uh, sweater. So, and so I'll drink that in my one liter. Then I'll just have a regular water, mother liter. And ever since I've done that, like I've had no issues. So like, it's amazing. Love it. The difference. Amazing. Uh, so what are you guys' thoughts on fueling for beginners, seasoned, and people that are kind of in the mindset that this is what I've been told and this is what I need to do without playing around? Yeah, I can jump in this first day if you yeah, don't mind. Yeah, jump, jump. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, yeah. It's a really loaded question. I could probably spend, you know, several hours talking about this, but I'm not going to spend several <laughs> hours. <laughs> but part of your question was talking about beginners. And I'm going to kind of treat this like what, how I talk to my, my undergraduates in my sport nutrition class. 
and we start to broach the subject of fueling. So pre-event uh, meal, snack, intra-event fueling, and then post-exercise nutrition. And one thing I say, and this is something we were chatting about before uh, we got started uh, t- today, is if you're if you're a competitive athlete, and doesn't you don't have to be a professional athlete, but if you're training for something to compete in that you want to do well in, carbs for the win. I think if you're starting out, you need to appreciate that the human body has been made to use carbohydrates as a fuel source. It is certainly not the only one. But if you're going to be doing something at even a slightly elevated intensity, you are going to be very good at oxidizing carbohydrates, using glucose as a fuel source to fuel your muscular contractions. Certainly, it's not the only other one. We can use fat as a fuel source. And generally, if you do something at low intensity, you can use fat very well. That doesn't mean you stop using carbohydrates. I think that's what some people might kind of get start leaning towards. Like, oh, I'm an endurance athlete. I have no use for carbohydrates because I've heard that, you know, we're very good at using fat for fuel. You are good at using fat for fuel. You're also still very good at using carbohydrates for fuel. You know, Dave, you mentioned Elliot Kipchoge, you know, just to jump to, you know, the an, an elite endurance athlete now when he does his his races, you know, at, you know, 430, 436 per mile pace in the marathon, he's using a lot of carbohydrates. He's using a lot of fat. So just because you're an endurance athlete, don't say, oh, I just I should do something low carb because, you know, that's what I'm using. You're very good at using carbohydrates. So I would say for those starting out. Don't neglect carbohydrates, even though sugar and glucose and carbohydrates have kind of been been vilified in like the general consensus of nutrition and what's good for you and what's bad for you. For an athlete, you can't ignore carbohydrates. It's what's, especially if you're a competitive athlete getting ready for a competition, carbohydrates are what you're going to be using as a fuel source. Now, for something, say, like an ultra event, if you're doing something like a full uh, a full distance Ironman or, say, 100K or 100 miler or even more than that, a lot of, in my opinion, and Dave, you can jump in if you want to, in my opinion, a lot of like traditional and strict kind of guidelines for nutrition kind of fly out the window. At that point, you just want to make sure you're getting enough in energy kilocalories. If that means downing a couple pieces of, of cold pizza and that works for you, then do that. It doesn't matter if it's like four to one ratio carbs to protein or carbs to fat or whatever it is. It's going to be imp- just the number of kilocalories, energy content is going to be important. And Robbie, I think before we started, you were asking about you know protein intake during some of these events. In my opinion, which has been backed up by a lot of things that I've read in uh, uh, in the in the literature, you want to make sure, especially for an event like that, for a long distance event, number one importance is making sure you get enough just kilocalories, just energy content. It's mostly going to be made up by carbohydrates, probably a fair amount of fat. And I really, I don't think you really need to worry about protein. The reason I would say you want to add some protein is for something like that, Protein, you're not really going to use much as an energy source. It's a, actually a fairly poor energy source. You can use some amino acids for energy, like the branched-chain amino acids, and that's what a lot of people who are, say, doing a strength workout in the, in the gym will, will use during their workout. But obviously, glucose or uh, maltodextrin is a lot better fuel source. But the reason that some amino acids can benefit you, especially for a long-distance event, it can start to kind of suppress protein breakdown a little bit which can be important in a, say, an ultra event where you're out there for several, several hours. You're, it's a highly catabolic event. You have a lot of muscle protein breaking down. And if you can suppress that a little bit during the event by ingesting some protein, dietary protein, that can be beneficial to you for, as you kind of progress through the race and especially for your recovery, which is going to last weeks after, after that event. So I would say the importance of protein during an event like that is really not for energy. The main benefit of that is going to be for kind of protecting your own muscle protein metabolism, suppressing breakdown a little bit. You're not going to stop it. You're, you're still going to, it's still going to be a highly catabolic event and you're going to lose some muscle protein in, in that event, but it can help minimize it. And that's the best benefit of protein during an event. And you don't need a lot of it. You shouldn't have a lot of it because you're going to have an issue. If you take a lot of protein during an event like that, you may have some digestive issues, uh, but you really need to focus on carbohydrate and fat. 
get some protein to minimize, to suppress that protein breakdown. And that's what the, the big benefit is. I usually have like a little beef stick, like a real small yep. little beef stick, like, you know, once every couple hours, you know, not, not a ton of protein in it, but yep. something to, you know, add a, add a little bit different flavoring, you know, <laughs> but well, the, you know, that's the, in an event that long, that's one thing I learned, you know, doing the, I mean, the longest event I've ever done is an Ironman and that was, you know, 10 to 12 hours long. You know, it's not, it wasn't a hundred mile where you're out there for literally 24 hours for some people uh, and something five. I learned or, or that <laughs> yeah, you're, you're talking to back of the Packers here. We're 34, yeah, yeah. 35 hours, <laughs> So something I learned is that, yeah, you want to make sure you, you get your nutrition in, but at the end of like that Ironman, when you're on, you're like your 11th, or 12th hour, you want to make sure that what you're, what you're what you're eating tastes good because you've probably just had gel after gel after gel after gel and bar after bar. And you're like, I don't want to see another one of these things. So popping a peppermint was fantastic because it was like this palate cleanser. It kind of like cleansed everything from all the gels and, and uh, bars you had. And then after that, then I could have like another bar of gel. And it's like, okay, this doesn't taste as awful after all the, the 20 that I've had before this or something like chicken broth. You know, it's, it's salty, it's got some fat in it, and it just tastes fantastic. So for events like that, you want to make sure you're getting enough total energy. And you want to make sure that it's it's palatable enough for you to to ingest. And that's where that's that's why I said the like the traditional rules and guidelines of nutrition can kind of fly out the uh, the window when you're in an event like that because you just need you just need to fuel yourself and make sure you're getting enough enough energy. Mm-hmm. And that and that can be that can be something that someone else can't tolerate. But that's where I think precision nutrition and personalized nutrition really comes into play. And practicing something in training to see what works for you. It falls within the general guidelines, but just because this person on TikTok isn't is doing it doesn't mean that's what's going to work for you. Find out where it works for you. Yeah, good points. Yeah, I don't know if you want me to add anything onto that. I mean, I think that covered almost everything that I would say as well. I mean, I was thinking a little bit about pre-race nutrition leading up to that. So, and I was also thinking about the length of the race making a difference as well. I know Dr. Lund and I have talked about that, but if you're running a 5K, 10K, I don't think that nutrition and even, or even hydration, depending on, you know, the climate, the temperature is really something you need to worry oh, about. During, during the event? No. Yeah, right. No. I, I mean, I, th- I remember us even having a conversation, whereas we were talking about the legitimacy of someone really not needing fuel nor water for a marathon if they're going to run close to two. Cause there's a, there's a huge argument if a person can break a two hour marathon and, you know, supposedly you have just enough muscle liver glycogen, you know, carbohydrate in the blood to last you for two hours. And so we were like, Hey, if someone didn't reach for the aid station to grab that water and they spent that time concentrating on course, if they could just, I actually, yeah, I actually presented that day. So I was bold enough, like at a professional conference said, cause this is before uh, Kipchoge actually broke two hours. Mm-hmm. I think it was like less than a year before. And I gave a presentation of developing this prototype of what a human, what a prototypical human would look like and what they'd have to do to break two hours. Yeah. And I said, well, if we looked at Ilya Kipchoge, his size, roughly, he probably has this many gram kilograms of muscle mass. It can roughly hold this much glycogen. I said, he shouldn't take anything. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't because there was some marathon. I forgot who it was. Some other, I forgot who it was. I think he was one of the Kenyan marathoners. He said he estimates he loses up to 30 seconds a race, just reaching for drinks and nutrition during the race. Mm-hmm. 30 seconds is huge. I mean, you're trying to chase two hours. I mean, you need every second you can get. So I said, okay, theoretically, Kipchoge's got enough stored glycogen that he'd be able to run 159.59 on just his stored muscle glycogen. So just fly through the aid stations. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty, I think it's pretty controversial, but I'm like, okay, well, what, what's the goal here? The goal here is to break two hours. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that. I wouldn't recommend that for anybody else, but <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the, that was the suggestion. Robbie, wasn't it uh, Zach Bitter that did the no food 100? Oh, that was Michael McKnight. Michael McKnight. Yeah, he ran an entire 100-miler. Now, he's fast. I don't remember what the time was, 14 hours, something like that. But he just drank water. It's impressive. That's, for that's 14 impressive. hours. 
Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. But he's a, he's a fat adapted uh, athlete as well. So he, yep. you know, that was okay. kind of one that's, of his studies. That's, that was so. my next, that was my next question. He is. Yep. yep. So you, you mentioned, uh, you don't have to really do any kind of fuel, um, fueling, pre-fueling for a, uh, 5k, 10k. And it reminded me of, uh, Michael Scott, you know, scarfing down a, <laughs> uh, fettuccine Alfredo before the, uh, the 5k on, on the office. <laughs> yes. I, I, yes. I, it actually, I always, I always, I think I always show that clip in my, my nutrition class. Cause it's just, it's just hilarious. Um, I would say that, that, that pre-fueling is important. Right. You don't have to have this massive plate of pasta, but I would say, I think the biggest mistake a lot of people can make, especially beginning athletes or beginning competitors is they, they focus too much on nutrition a lot of times. Like, oh, I'll go to this this pre-race pasta party and they'll just gorge, you know, gorge themselves on pasta to the point where they get sick and it's going to affect their performance. And when I tell my students, some of whom are athletes who might use this for themselves or for clients or, or athletes, it's like if your habitual nutrition has been working for you or your or your athletes up until this point, why would you change it drastically before? All you have to do is just do a slightly small alterations to it. So for me, when I did it, like the day or two before my big races, I would maybe focus a little bit more on carbohydrates. That's it. I wouldn't really change anything else. And if it's as as as, as short as like a 5K or a 10K, I think the general rule of thumb, I don't think this is really set in stone, but I think the general rule of thumb is if something is less than one hour, you really don't need anything during the event. Mm-hmm. Maybe water. I mean, if it's hot, maybe water, but certainly as far as kilocalories, energy, you've got plenty of muscle glycogen and, and blood glucose to, to support you. After an hour, then yeah, maybe you have to start t- uh, thinking about uh, taking something during. But even just the pre-race event nutrition for those, don't change your habitual nutrition too much. Maybe focus a little bit more on carbohydrates than the others. And that's, that's what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty standard in, in ultra as you know, if it's less than an hour training, like don't really need much during. Yep. Yeah. I have a, I have a question. Um, I remember when I was, you know, in a nutrition class and they say the average person's got about 90 minutes of, uh, glycogen stores. Is there any way to train that? I've always had that thought, but I've uh, never found anything like, can you train to store more muscle glycogen? Certainly. Um, I would say the, the it's 90 minutes to two hours. And I think that window encapsulates a few things. So larger people have more muscles. So just, they have a larger absolute amount of, of muscle glycogen. Uh, just training for net as you become more endurance trained. And this is why a lot of people kind of, I think they tend to forget about that endurance athletes use carbohydrates as well. Endurance athletes, as you train and you're, you're fueling yourself properly to you're using a glycogen, you will actually allow yourself to store more glycogen, especially in your skeletal muscles. So just the act of training and supporting yourself with nutrition to support that you'll actually use, uh, so, store more glycogen. I think that 90 minutes to two hours includes that. So maybe as you, when you started, you like your limit was maybe like 95 minutes, but after like, say like six months or a year of training, maybe you're closer to like an hour 50 that you could actually run because of your greater amount of, of glycogen storage just from, from training. That's why I say, you know, just because you're an endurance athletes doesn't mean you're just good at using fat. You are very good at using fat, but you're also really, really good at using carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. You're, you're good at using both of them and, and athletes can't forget about that. Where would you suggest athletes start to begin going down the nutrition <laughs> rabbit hole of, especially, you know, beginners. Yeah. Let's just say, you know, the, the longer distance stuff, the ultras and so you can even talk marathons about half marathons. How do they start figuring out how to fuel properly? I think a lot of it has to do again with self-awareness. If what you're doing is if your current nutrition is working for you, maybe you're doing something more like a longer distance. You start with five K's and now you want to go up to like a half marathon or marathon. Maybe you want to get into triathlon. You want to do 70.3 or full Ironman. I would say, there's no reason to not stick with your current nutrition. See if that works first. I see so many people think that they're going to like this next step, like, oh, I have to totally change my nutrition. Why? 
you may it may help uh but you have to start with what's currently working with you first and if you're plateauing or if your workouts just don't feel right first see if you're just if you're just not taking in enough food that's usually the uh the culprit you're just not taking enough total kilocalories start they start eating more maybe that that'll solve it after that maybe start looking into something like carbohydrate periodization or going towards a lower carbohydrate meal plan what i tell my students and some athletes is say usually usually the culprit is you're not eating enough i would say almost 100 percent of the times i've advised athletes they just weren't eating enough stick with your current habitual kind of macronutrient proportions but just eat more and that was usually the culprit when people when i start teaching about the ketogenic diet and low carb which i think is more useful for say clinical populations for say like reversal of diabetic conditions a lot of people get interested in that because one one of the features of say a ketogenic diet is weight loss and everyone's all crazy about losing weight because everyone wants to lose weight usually unnecessarily so they want to try it and i tell people like you can try it i mean everybody has free will you can try whatever meal plan you want or diet that you want but as far as athletes First, if it's going to work, it's going to take a while for you to adapt because the human body, if, you, if you've been following a traditional Western diet, which is usually at least 50% of the, of the calories coming from carbohydrate, you are well suited to use carbohydrate as a fuel source. If you go keto, you take most of that away and your body will adapt, but it's the first few weeks are going to be really rough for you. Yeah. You're going to be just fatigued all the time. Your workouts are going to be very, very slow. You're going to feel lethargic. Most people will start to see a rebound and hopefully you'll get back up to where you're uh, beginning like intensity was, but it takes a while. And for some people, it may not work. Some people, it may work very well. Yeah. I know that's kind of like a cop-out answer, but my <laughs> point is, <laughs> my point is, I don't think it's worth trying to see if it works. There should be no reason why someone should go to a, a, a ketogenic diet unless there's a medical necessity for it, which, which can be a case. There's some pathological instances where you, you, you're going to need to use more you know, take in more fat, not use carbohydrate. But if that doesn't apply to you, stick with your habitual meal plan. Make sure that's dialed in. And are you just eating enough kilocalories? Are you taking enough energy? That's usually the, the culprit. Yeah. I, I'll just add in there too. If the athlete doesn't even know where to start or they don't even know anything about race nutrition, like Dr. Lund was saying, Gatorade's been around forever and they have now this beautiful laboratory in Valhalla, New York, that I just visited a couple weeks ago, where they're they're constantly working with athletes and testing new product. You know, so he was talking about the composition of Gatorade. These companies have put so many million dollars into the research of the composition of their drinks, so that the composition is right for an athlete. That I don't really feel like you could go wrong with trying a company's product. For the first time you know so if you really don't know what to do you know get on a bike go for a run and try gatorade you know and that's going to be generally roughly a good co composition of electrolyte water and you know glucose or carbohydrate um for you to have on your run and if you feel like a little weak if you feel a little lethargic then like dr lund said maybe you're not having enough so maybe next time you go maybe you need to try to add in another 12 ounces of Gatorade and see if that makes a difference, you know, so I would start with purchasing a product, whether that's Gatorade, whether that's precision hydration, whether that's goo, like I just bought goo Roctane for one of my last races and I loved it. Like I, I have been loving using goo Roctane. <laughs> um, it has some carbohydrate in it or it has a lot of carbohydrate. In it. I think it has like around 60 grams per hour. It's got some caffeine. It's got the electrolytes. Um, so I've been enjoying using that, but you know, go on thefeed.com or go on some of these websites and just find a general brand. I don't think you can go wrong. And then depending on the length you are at and the symptoms you are having, I think that will kind of inform whether you need to eat more calories, like you need to add a scoop, or if you have an upset stomach, maybe it's not the maybe it's the fructose that's bothering you. So maybe you need to go towards more of a cluster dextrin or less fructose and more glucose because the fructose has been known to upset people's stomachs. So I think, you know, try try a product and then let the symptoms after that kind of dictate what your next move is going to be. And I would say just very quickly, I just to 
even before that, Dave, make especially for people who are just getting into the sport, make sure your habitual whole food nutrition is good point as it should be. Because a lot of people, you know, they want to get interested in doing like something competitive, like a 5K, and their diet is terrible, and and they and they know it. Like, oh yeah, I, I eat one meal a day, and it's not varied at all. And I hardly eat fruits or vegetables and I don't eat good carbohydrates or don't eat a lot of, a lot of meat or it's, it's just all over the place. I would say, make sure that th that's the most important thing. I think make sure your whole food nutrition is appropriate. Then you can start investigating the products that Dave was talking yep. about to kind of like literally supplement what your whole food nutrition is. Great point. I like that. That's a, it's a, it's a different take than, you know, we usually get, in this world these days and the nutrition world, what are some of the, the symptoms that these beginners or seasoned athletes should uh, watch out for when their nutrition is starting to get off? Oh, ah, uh, I would, for, well, I would say energy level. I would say, I mean, kind of like, this would be like long-term, like if they're starting, if they're losing a lot of weight, I mean, obviously I think they're probably just not, they're not eating enough. Um, like during an event, if they feel bloated, Maybe they're taking in too much fluid or too, as Dave was talking about earlier in the podcast, too much electrolyte or too much carbohydrate if they start to feel like this bloating sensation. Uh, when we were talking about hydration earlier, one thing that can be very dangerous, especially for beginning, say, runners or back of the packers, if they're drinking too much, like say during a marathon, they're drinking too much water. Let's say they're like, you know what? I don't want to drink any Gatorade because... Um, Gatorade's this large corporation. And I don't trust them. And I just want to have something that's good for me. And I want to, I'm just going to have good old plain water and that can't hurt me. Well, if they drink too much water and they're sweating a lot, they can get this very dangerous condition called hyponatremia or water intoxication, which you can die from. It basically means you've diluted the amount of sodium in your blood. And this is unfortunately can become very common for people who are out there on a marathon for say seven hours. They're sweating but they're out there for so long and they're drinking at every state, every aid station, even though they don't need to, and they're drinking just plain water. So they're sweating sodium out. They're taking in plain water, which is diluting the sodium in their body. So their blood sodium gets diluted very quickly. And that causes what's called an osmotic imbalance at the blood brain barrier. And it can cause this very quick kind of cascade of symptoms that can lead to death. And it's, a serious issue. I mean, it can be, unfortunately it's become a lot more common. Um, but I think that's a, one of the biggest things to look for just because it's very dangerous, Robbie, to answer your question is hydration is important, but don't overdo it. You can definitely drink too much plain, plain water. And going back to what Dave was saying, this is why Gatorade has been around for decades. They've dialed in. I mean, there's the appropriate amount of sodium. You're, you're drinking this product. It's got fluid, it's got electrolytes, it's got carbohydrates. That's what you need for an event like this. I'll say there, uh, Dr. Lund and I also worked with an athlete who had a lot of issues at Lake Placid. She was having, you know, like bowel movements during the race. She was vomiting, really upset stomach. She was taking not only water, but she was taking in, I think it was um, infinite nutrition. And then she was drinking ketones on top of that. And then she was doing bars and she was, she was doing so much yeah. that I think gastric emptying just completely stopped. And if yep. anything, the, the contents in her stomach, like the tonicity of it or, or the osmolality of it were so high that I actually think she was pulling water into the stomach to try to like balance that. And that was causing the diarrhea and that was causing the vomiting. So I think too much can also be an issue as well. So if you're vomiting and you're having those issues, like you have to think about why gastric emptying has possibly, and I know vomiting is really popular during the Moab 240 and the Coca Donut <laughs> 250. And I see that on YouTube all the time, you know, and obviously pushing for that long, your body's not going to like it and you're going to vomit just because your body wants to shut, shut down. But like when we see Iron Man and we see maybe these 10 hour, 12, 16 hour distances, like maybe it's because you're taking in too much and your stomach just can't get rid of it. You know, that's that's why I also like the idea of I, I talked about this a little bit last time, but gut distension. So how much you distend the stomach influences gastric emptying. So if it's really hot out and you know you need water, you know, or you need like um, electrolytes, drinking large amounts all at once, like 500 mLs 
will quicken gastric emptying versus like 200 or 100 mls you know so you can separate a little bit from your solid foods to get in more of that more of that water that's good stuff yeah. um i want to talk about this cluster reduction a little bit i i, I kind of did some research on it uh, on my own and you know, the one of the main things I got out of it was that it absorbs in the small intestine and it also helps with hydration. What have, what have you guys found out with this uh, cl- cluster dextrin? Dave, you want to go? Um, I mean, personally, in my racing, like I'm just starting to use it in my research. So I haven't really come to any findings yet. I have 10 subjects who are going to be taking it in my research and I have them taking 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight before they go into the chamber, um, which is about like what the literature says that you should take within the hour leading up to exercise 0.5 grams per kilogram. So if you just take your weight in kilograms, cut it in half, that's what they say the carbohydrate recommendations are for the hour leading up to. And then 1.2 after I actually have them taking 0.5 because of another issue, but 1.2 afterwards, Um, but from what I've personally experienced with it and what I hope to find with these, these athletes or these people exercising in the lab is kind of what you have found that gastric emptying is, is much cleaner and much better, um, that they don't have upset stomach. We're going to have them looking at a GI scale while they're exercising. And we're going to be asking them how their gastrointestinal distress is during exercise. So they answer on a scale from one to 10, they can tell us if it's getting better or getting worse. You know, but from experience, what I found is that um, it certainly helps me digest and empty out carbohydrates much quicker than other substances. So I feel less sick um, and I am able, I'm able to handle a higher amount of carbohydrate while um, I'm fueling versus if I'm using something that, let's say, has a mixture of fructose and glucose. Um, but once once my study is done, I will let you know. I'll what you I'll let you know what we find in the in the lab. Yeah, and as far as the uh, Robbie, as far as like the hydration question you asked, I th- I think this also it allows it and the transporter in like the intestinal cells. I think it also symports, so basically it takes in like a molecule of water into the blood, you know, with with it when it gets absorbed in the bloodstream. So I think that can whether it's going to have a a significant or a practical influence on hydration, it certainly doesn't hurt if you're taking in water with this, you know, absorption of the carbohydrates. So it's kind of a win-win for an endurance athlete. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to hear about your research on this, Dave. Um, yeah. Like Justin and I were saying, it's like we were calling it the secret sauce before we let people know about it. We, <laughs> Dr. Lund, maybe, we wanted- maybe we should bottle it and market it ourselves out of our lab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's, groundbreaking this kind of in the sense that like Morton products are kind of groundbreaking that it's, you know, it's kind of allowing from what we knew about, you know, gastric emptying and emptying in the stomach, the, as far as like the concentration of carbohydrate was maybe like 8% carbohydrate. Now it's like 18% if, you, if you're using Morton products, you know, this is something similar to be able to kind of maximize. That's kind of one of the limiting factors of endurance is how quickly we can absorb the substrate carbohydrate substrate in the bloodstream and then oxidize it at the muscle cell and if we can kind of break that barrier now the muscle's like all right we've got more of this here let's use more of this maybe we can run faster now and yeah i was using uh the cluster dextrin and a lot of the morton i was using those bars those 220 bars with 40 grams of carbs so i was eating those every other hour as well so yeah I um I like the Morton. I don't like their caffeine gel. <laughs> they can, it does taste they can keep different. that one. Yeah, it does not. They can keep that good. one. Huh. <laughs> it tastes like baking powder or baking soda or something. I don't know. Yeah, it is bad. It's terrible. I need to add a just. I know they're flavorless, but that that's not flavorless. That's something. There's something in that <laughs> one. <laughs> this is a bad flavor. Well, guys, I appreciate you guys uh, coming on. Um, Dave, you want to go into where people can find you and, you know, how you, uh, you know, if somebody needs to, wants to reach out to you, if, if you allow that, if they have any questions. Oh yeah. So my Instagram handle is endurance Dave, and you can reach me through my email, which is david.martin at uconn.edu. 
Um, and I work at the lab with Dr. Lund, which he can get into a little bit. And then I'm also located at the Corey Stringer Institute until July. Hopefully, if I graduate with my dissertation, Dr. Lund's on my committee. So you just have to pressure him <laughs> to say that I've graduated and I've passed. Um, but I'm at the Corey Stringer Institute at UConn, hopefully until July. And then who knows after that. Dr. Lund, you want to, yeah, how, how um, do people so, reach out to you? Yeah. So I, uh, I'm a professor at Southern Connecticut State University uh, in exercise and sports science. I'm also the director of the human performance laboratory. So I, I, I personally don't have a big social media presence, um, but you can certainly reach me at my couple of email addresses. So my school email address is L-U-N-N-W-1. So my last name, first initial, LUNW1 at southernct.edu. Or if anyone's interested in getting some testing done at our, our uh, human performance lab, we do VO2 max testing, lactate threshold, metabolic efficiency, body composition, running gait analysis, a lot of cool stuff. So that email address is scsu.humanperformance at gmail. Yeah, we're about to have the grand opening of his lab. It's going to be called the Champ Lab. And uh, we'll have the website done at the end of the month. So if people want to reach us through the website as well, which we can give you to put in show notes, if you'd like to, they can reach us through yeah. the website. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely throw those in there. Yep. This is a well, lot thank of fun. You guys. It was Thanks, a... guys. <laughs> yeah, this was a, <laughs> it was a, I learned a lot during this one. And For sure. It... After talking with, Dave, last time it changed my mind and um, just you keep repeating that we're very efficient at burning carbohydrates and that should be our main f source of fuel is my biggest takeaway because I was so low carb for so long and I struggled through all that and I lost fifth gear and you know a bunch of other metabolic stuff that happened to me with staying low carb for so long. Yeah. It's just kind of like refreshing for me to know that it's okay to use carbohydrates, even though I have been, but like you were saying, that balance of where social media goes, uh, it was just really good for me to hear. So thank you. Good. Good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Thanks guys. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Awesome. No, thanks for having us again. It's always a pleasure yes. talking to you. Yes. This has been great.